I suppose it's a film that kind of is bringing up the memories from everybody's past. I, I, I first of all, Kari, I, I have to point <laughs> out, didn't do that for me. <laughs> well, we, we may have hit some hard times, but not that hard. Welcome to the Flick Lab. This is the kind of film podcast where we just might try to calculate snarkily whether it's possible to live with X amount of yen with four people in a 2DK apartment for over a year to verify whether the film is technically accurate and instead missing the overarching point in the entire film. I'm Karri, one of your hosts tonight. Our guest is uh, Shosan from Japan, bringing his local expertise to the episode. Welcome, Shosan. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. Yeah, you're most welcome. And of course, we have our co-host, Henrikson. Hi there. Who is not being welcomed into the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I just did. <laughs> no, you you mere, merely mentioned my name. It's It's not like, welcome and nice to have you here. Yeah, it's not not so nice to have you here. Now, yeah, at this true. point, you have become yeah. a, quite a commodity already. <laughs> so, how was yesterday? Too much sake last night? Well, no, nothing of of the shorts. In, in case that you are trying to make innuendos into age-old <laughs> episodes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, of course, a little bit about our backgrounds. I graduated from media studies some years ago and worked as an assisting editor and and used camera in the middle of it for some pretty famous Finnish TV series as well. But Henrik, what are you doing to make the world a better place? You're doing something similar. I'm I'm holding the camera today while mm. while also making sound pieces and other other forms of audiovisual entertainment and as in case we with this podcast also torture. <laughs> That's the spirit. It's good that we don't have any tired co-hosts here. It's good that we don't have any listeners who might get sick of these lame jokes. <laughs> Shosan, yeah. uh, how are you? Please share a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm currently working as an English teacher for a private education company. At university, I studied sociology and uh, anthropology. Yeah especially focusing on gender studies. So okay. I don't have so much knowledge of, of film or music or, yeah, but I'm so excited yeah, to talk about this today's film because it's quite interesting in my academic stuff and my educational working. Okay, yeah, that's great to hear and great to have kind of a local support in this podcast to kind of get the cultural context to all the little nitty-gritty details. So... Excellent. So today we're looking at a documentary of what Henrik would do to his own children. 
<laughs> well, well, the running theme with today's film and this podcast is the is the constant desperation and grasping for money. Well, but see, I got some kind of connection why we're watching the film tonight. Why are we watching this film tonight, actually? That's that's the good question that I've been meant to ask ask from you. Why today's okay. film? Well, it's obvious, you know. I was supposed to be in Tokyo in April now. Well, the coronavirus kind of prevented my trip to Japan, and so, you know. So, so, so what? We are supposed to check out the documentary about about your traveling plan? Is that what you are hinting? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... <laughs> but... Like, pro tip, ne- ne- next time, next time, don't, don't, don't leave that tight of a budget. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think we have been uh, stuck in Italy for some time now, so I... I think it's also a good idea to take a trip a little bit further. Yeah, we did kind so. of a hit in Italy, Italy peak, so to say. What's your history with the film show? Uh, I think I have watched this film three times in my life. I think I watched this film when this was released. When I watched this film for the first time, I was quite young. So I think I didn't get interested in this film. I just felt so horrible. And I just assumed that, oh... I am happy that I was not the children in the film. I suppose it's a film that kind of is bringing up the memories from everybody's past. Like how how were your relationship with your own parents or how is your relationship with children or something like that. I, 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 first of all, Kari, I, I have to point <laughs> out, didn't do that for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know what Seth's telling about our parenting, but... Uh, <coughs> <laughs> well, we, we may have hit some hard times, but not that hard. <laughs> no, not that hard. So I think, Henrik, this is also your first time seeing this film, me included. It is, it is. I, I do kind of know the director from his, his later works, Shoplifters and Like Father, Like Son... So indeed, tonight it's going to be Nobody Knows from 2004, also known as Daremo Shiranai. And the director is uh, Hirokazu Koreeda, first Japanese Palm d'Or winning director in 21 years, so for his work on shoplifters. And he also did win the jury prize in 2013 for Like Father, Like Son. And Nobody Knows was also the official submission of Japan for the best foreign language film category of the 77th Academy Awards in 2005. It was a long road, this movie. He spent more or less 15 years working on the film. And Hirokazu wrote the first draft of the screenplay around 15 years before the film was actually made. One interesting fact also about the film is that it was filmed chronologically over almost an entire year. Interesting themes as well. Themes of poverty and child abandonment, like the City of God. Eric, have you seen City of God? I I have twice or three times. Can you see parallels? Some, some, but if I would have to contrast the nobody knows to against some other film, I I, I would be more likely to point my finger towards the direction of of Stray Dogs, which we also covered in the podcast during our <laughs> International Cinema Challenge. Okay. I don't think the images were hanging on that long. 
No, like. but I did kind of uh, get the same core feeling from the film for mm. better or the worst. Okay. Yeah, this was a long process indeed, especially when you're working with child actors. It took a lot of time to get the right kids. They went through a number of non-professionals until they settled with these kids. And the director made great efforts to build some kind of a personal connection with the kids so that they would trust each other and that the kids would trust also each other and it would actually seem like a sibling situation. And what you have on the screen is of course very natural performances that I can see. The director also has cited a number of subtle changes in Japanese culture and he says that quote that have transformed mothers into the parent solely responsible for their children's well-being. The once powerful nuclear family, he notes, was all but ceased to exist in Japan. There is not much sense of community or a tight-knit community, he explains in this article from LA Times. Shaw, do you think there is an issue like this in Japan right now, that uh, in increasing numbers families are abandoning their children, or they don't have like this close-knit community in the family anymore? Uh, it is still a big problem in Japan, and I think are compared with other countries, Japanese society and Japanese government is highly regarded kind to people. But when it comes talking about family, not everyone would like to come to their house, someone's house, or come to give help to others because family issues should be dealt in the family by family. So mm. when I watch this film, I I didn't, when I rewatch this film in order to take this interview, I felt that, oh, this film is still quite new to me because it doesn't look so old. It's still dealing with current issues. Yeah. So very topical even today. Yes. Yeah, this film was based on the very sad case happening in 1988. I was, I was not yeah. born at that time, but... I asked my mother uh, she whether she remembered the real case. So, and she remembered that and she told me that how shocked she was when she heard the news. In the film, the mother is quite uh, mean or is immature, but the real mother is much more immature and she didn't come to her children until her son was arrested. And she didn't pay attention to her children till her son got arrested. Yeah, there is a lot of in interesting points here. This uh, Sugamo child abandonment case. Yeah. I've heard that it's uh, more or less like a, like a nice, quiet, mm -hmm. peaceful, nice neighborhood. Have you ever been to Sugamo? Yeah, I have been too. And it's famous as an elderly people's city. You know Shibuya? Mm-hmm. That is famous for Japanese young people. Sugamo is very famous for Japanese old people to go shopping. Yeah, I heard that you might be finding some different kind of items there if you go shopping for yeah. whatever it is, different shops. Yeah, so in real life, the concern started to rise only after five months when the rent was not paid. And uh, in real life also, the police came in, a teenager boy opened the door and an infant's body was possibly stored in a closet 
stored nevertheless inside the house and all the children had different fathers, am I correct? Yes. Yeah. And kids had no relationship with their fathers. Possibly they didn't know who their fathers even were. And the landlord didn't know they were there and they were not registered, these kids. And the landlord knew only of the one kid. There was the oldest boy, more or less 14 to 15 years old, a girl of about seven years old, a girl of three, and then the toddler who died, and one girl, the fifth, uh, who was unaccounted for. She was gone. Nobody knows where she went. The mother just told the kids that she has a new boyfriend and left everybody, but promised to be back. She first did come every few weeks, just like kind of in the movie, and provided some money and everything else. And then she visited in one January and never returned. The kids uh, were possibly born at home. Other kids then so-called, let's call him Akira, because there's officially, you know, only of the A, B, C, D, E kids. They never released the actual names of these kids out. So I'm just gonna call, call this one kid Akira, because we're talking about basically the same character here. So only Akira was able to leave the house. The others were kept inside all the time. Akira wasn't able to write properly. He was able to write some of the siblings' names in kanji, but his own name only in hiragana. Mother was roughly 40 years of age. Finally arrested in a mistress house in Chiba. She just uh, said in uh, police interviews that she wanted to move on with her life and start fresh. So she abandoned the children. The mother also explained that her uh, second child was killed by choking when drinking milk from a bottle. The oldest child, Akira, then was invited to social services to do the birth certificates for three people and unfortunately two death certificates. Akira was sent to a care facility of some sorts and the two sisters went to an orphanage. In the film there is no mention, of course, of the second boy who was dead or this infant who was in the closet. If I can add more, mm -hmm. the mother, the real case mother, ordered her Sam to say that he goes to school or he is educated because in order not to be pointed out by others, his mother asked her Sam to look really polite, to look really normal. So I think her mother in some point uh, is feeling or is worried about uh, arresting. So I think she to some extent has a point or eagerness to leave their children sometimes. <laughs> yeah, when you compare the reality versus the film, in the real-life incident there was child E who died due to an assault of the friends of Akira. The reason for this assault was that the kid would not stop crying. One source said that she ate something that belonged to the friend mm -hmm. and then she got punched by this uh, Akira's friend. Yeah. And then they put on her a futon on top of her and then jumped on her from a closet onto the futon. And it's said that the oldest child was not at the house during the incident, Akira. In the film, of course, this, let's say, the same character dies due to an accident in the flat. Something maybe also worth noting is that it appears that the mother, after serving her three-year sentence for child abandonment, managed yeah. still still yeah. even after all this regained the custody of the two two daughters yeah like 
how is this possible? Some kind of a loophole or... I, I don't think it's not so so much surprising to me or to Japanese mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because for Western audiences, that was was somewhat... Uh, actually, at, at least to me, it was somewhat surprising. I, I, and when I came up on that small nugget of fact, I was kind of about how and why did she still regain the custody? I kind of can understand that maybe the underlying motivations, like also invest is this bigger need from the system to kind of try to uphold and and keep the family unit as intact as possible. So to to grant the custody of the children to to a parent or both of the parents and try to as hard as possible, try to prevent the separation of the children from each other and, and from their parents. But still, the, the case from what I understood was so extreme that I I would hazard to say that, for example, in Finland, the mother would not have been able to regain the custody and the children would simply had been separated. Yeah. Yeah, also something to point out is that after the whole incident, the Asahi Shimbun Saturday edition yeah. of the movie Traveler explained that uh, Akira became a student and became also a, is this correct, student council president? And it seems that he never met his mother after that. No surprise there. Mm, well, I think at first I told that are in Japanese society, people do not like to talk about family issue. So even if they feel all oh, that family is quite strange or all oh, the children are in danger, but people think that children should be grown up by their biological parents. Mm-hmm. We sometimes pay more attention to biological relationship than the social relationship or cultural relationship. So in this case, even though children are were in danger and were abandoned by their mother, she still had right to receive her two daughters or a son after she was released. So as you said that, our, that Sam didn't meet his mother after the case, but it's quite surprising fact to many Japanese people. Yeah, what I was also shocked about or amazed about is the level of disinterest people show towards the children because so many people already knew that they were alone for an extended period of time inside the flat and nobody did anything, not even the landlord, like, where's my money? Oh, the mother is not here. Okay. For example, in Finland, nobody cares about anyone ever, but if it's a child, then it's then it's important. Then people will react. They will see like a kid somewhere walking alone yeah. and they will probably do something. Yeah, children and household pets are something that, that yeah. still pull everything's heartstrings. Yeah. I think so. We have quite strange a TV program that children go shopping alone at the age of three or four. So a lot of people like watch the TV program and they like to say, Gambate, cheer up when they watch a very small children go shopping alone. So in Japan, I think, I think we think children are very vulnerable and we have to protect them. But sometimes we deal with children in a way that the adults would like to do. Yeah, and I, I feel that something that should be pointed out is that the film, of course, 
as everybody has heard by now, is the less grislier version of events. So, as stated, it's not the actual events, really. It's just kind of inspired by the events. Yeah, and the film itself makes this perfectly clear by stating in the very first image that even though the film is being inspired by a real case, the story itself still remains fictional. Which is kind of a letdown, isn't it? Like, okay, so what is this movie trying to do here? It's not a biography or not really factual events taking place kind of reenacted. But we will get to the message of the film later, I'm sure. I feel that maybe perhaps the director also didn't want to involve the little kids with anything more grisly than what is already seen here. Most likely no, because Hirokazu is someone who, at least from my experience, what I've seen the man's work, quite often deals with the topic of the family unit and the topic of, of the bond between a parent and a child. This was the, the running theme in, in Shoplifters and also in where the, tea, the story kind of revolves around child abduction or another per, family just taking a child that they find abandoned outside into the cold and they take that child with them and, and this way adopt a child. And also in like father, like son, where, where, Hirokazu studied the meaning of being a biological son. In Father Like Son, the story revolves around a businessman who later finds out that the child that has always been his son is actually someone else's biological child, and he has been raising this child simply because of a mix-up in hospital. Yeah, this is a director who seems to like to delve into societal issues or some kind of a family dynamics. All right, Sean Henrik, would it be scene by scene, Sen Park Sen? Well, sure, but you know, by all means, take us into the scene by scene territory. Okay, unless somebody has any big urges to buy Apollo Choco from the grocery store. All right, so we have the title card, which says, as stated, even though this is based on real events, it has nothing to do with the real events, basically. So, although this film was inspired by actual events that took place in Tokyo, the details and characters portrayed in this film are entirely fictional. Where we jump into the monorail, it's uh, Akira and the schoolgirl in the monorail. It's kind of a glimpse into the future, kind of a flash forward to the end parts of the film. And uh, when I was watching this film, I thought that this is the mother and the son approaching the new flat. But upon second viewing, of course, it's not when you already have all the context and everything. But you see that the sh shirt is already completely broken here that Akira is wearing. It's visibly broken and he is more grown than in the next shot. We have kind of a isolated and distant camera work. All the seats are empty and the mood is down. And then we meet the landlord. And this starts interestingly with the close-up of Akira. Not yet sure what is going on around him. But you will notice that this is the main character with all these close-ups and the intimacy, let's say, that we have with the camera and Akira. We also see that he has some concerns about what's going on. He keeps swallowing here whenever the mother is spewing some other lie from her mouth. For example, my husband's abroad or that Akira goes to school. Is it normal everywhere in Japan to 
treat and gift your landlord like this show? Yeah, it's natural. I kind of like that approach, but in Finland, of course, we barely see each other face to face. Oh, yeah, in, in Finland also, in rent circumstances, there is much stronger divide between a producer of a service like the landlord who owns the property and gives you the service of a living on, on his property and you as a customer, as someone who, who pays rent and for this rent has the luxury of owning a home and being allowed to live on the property. Where, where in, in the opening of the film, the, the, there seems to be more friendly terms between the landlord and the mother uh, through the act of giving the landlord a gift. In, in Finland, it's much more kind of a business-oriented viewpoint of someone who, who has a service and you as a customer. Yeah, after they leave the landlord, she makes the statement that kind of gossiping about the landlord that she must have remarried which is kind of ironic of course that you would even have it in you to spend energy to gossip about other people's relationships considering this lady right here i think in relationships and marriage are like almost the only two things that the mother actually does talk about in in the film it's it's almost it's it's kind of like a running running motif with the mother. She has nothing else to say in course of the film except that the landlord must have remarried, and I knew this and this dude in the past, and your father is is this guy. Most of the dialogue of of the mother revolves around relationships. It's probably very important to her, as we will see, well, she will sacrifice everything for what seems to be a relationship. But also, I think that it's also being coming from her mouth to properly emphasize that she is interested about this subject and therefore she will disappear. Now, there are the movers and they get the children out of the bags. There's uh, Shigeru, Yuki, and uh, everybody's getting the Information, once again, what are the house rules? You cannot leave the house. Only Akira can leave the house to go do some shopping and whatnot. This was interesting culturally because the children are in the in the travel bags. And the reason for that is that if the kids would be seen outside by anyone, then they could be reported to the police or police would see them and they would be sent out back to school or they would be investigated why these kids are not in school during school hours. Isn't that right, Shosan? Yeah. In the film, I think all children are not registered officially and to the government or no yeah, people in government or people in school, first of all, do not know they are born or they cannot figure out they are registered or people do not know they go to school or not. So they decided to ignore, I think. They would have probably ignored the kids anyway. But kind of a dangerous risk taken there. Like, it, it probably was extremely hot inside that truck. Yeah, but, well, we do not feel it's dangerous for children to walk outside at night. Mm. No one cares. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember from, from childhood definitely having these limitations that were put on, at least for my friends, that their parents would say to them that you cannot be outside anymore after 9 or 10. And for me... <laughs> I guess I had more free schedule. Well, I think it was kind of a unspoken rule that, of course, you go 
back home after, you know, before it's too dark. Really, because so many children in Japan go to cram school to pass very difficult our junior high school or university. They go to cram school till 10 p.m. So I think it's not strange to Japanese people that children are working around 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. Okay. So Akira is now picking up one of the girls who came through a different mode of transportation. This is where we meet uh, Kyoko. And the funny thing is that the second question that she asks about flat is, uh, what about the washing machine? (laughs) She must be doing a lot of laundry and uh, we will find out that she indeed does. They have the dinner together at around seven minutes into the film. They have a 2DK apartment. So it means two rooms and one dining room and a kitchen. So D and K for dining and kitchen. And you see that they are eating soba, Japanese traditional noodle. And it's our custom that we eat soba when we move to a new house. Oh, okay. So I think this mother is sometimes so immature, but sometimes she pays attention to traditional things, such as eating soba when they move to a new house. That's very interesting because we would have, of course, completely missed that one without you. Uh, absolutely. We can't tell a noodle from a noodle. <laughs> There's kind of a weird scene where it's, uh, I guess, Yuki who tells that the tatami mats are smelling good, like leaves of nature. But there's a lot of scenes like this in the film which do not exactly give you that much information or maybe show you found something in this tatami moment. Well, nowadays, a lot of Japanese houses do not have tatami at their home because it's expensive or it's difficult to keep it clean. When I watched this, I saw that oh, to these children, it's a quite rare time or it's their first time to feel tatami or to feel, to experience something new. Okay. Around 10 minutes, we have the next morning putting on some makeup and Akira asks, are you going to be late from work? We find out that Akira is pretty much responsible for cooking here kind of all the time. So somehow she has managed to build up the family dynamics in, in a way that she doesn't apparently need to do much anything at all in the flat. So they are kind of uh, self-sufficient in a way. Because also at 11 minutes we see that the children are cleaning the household. Of course they just moved in, but they are cleaning and they are eating together on their own. And at 13 minutes Akira goes to shopping. It's not a convenience store just yet. I kept wondering, kind of throughout the film, why does Akira go to the small convenience store instead of going to some bigger supermarket? Because it might be cheaper, no? Yeah, it might be cheaper. Convenience stores, food, and supermarket foods are always the same, but the things at the convenience store are more expensive. What the kids were eating in real life was also convenience store food, something that was pre-packaged and some kind of junk food. And that's why yeah. they also were nutritionally deficient. Kind of interesting that they were not looking for other options here. Maybe they found some can that was the cheapest in the convenience store, perhaps? Or they sometimes they do not have to use so many staffs at home in order to cook food. So they children are usually go to convenience store because they do not have to cook by themselves. Yeah. Also something that we establish on this shopping trip, Akira is a very kind person, a very kind big brother. Because he goes through the trouble to go to the other store to find the Apollo Choco items for his sister. And we also get to know that there's a video arcade 
and a bunch of other stores in the neighborhood. A video game arcade we will visit later. Back at home we have these funny close-ups of things starting to pop up. We have a special close-up of legs in the toilet when Akira is doing something there. I suppose it could also be the, the kitchen because the next shot is uh, about the, the potatoes. But we have these, you know, these lower angle shots of feet at least twice, which I found kind of interesting. Henrik, any memories like that from the director's other movies like this? Uh, not necessarily from director's other movies. Someone who does have the same tendency, however, from, from the Western directors is Quentin Tarantino. Who is in turn inspired by many Japanese directors. Many, many Japanese directors and certain aspects of Japanese culture, like for example an anime. There are some really cute moments here, which seem kind of really natural. Sometimes you might wonder if they are laughing to the fact that they are being filmed because these are all, all non-professionals. And sometimes you feel that the kids are acting like the camera is not there at all, which is great. For example, when they're eating together on the table, the entire family and the mother on this one evening, I feel that they have a great chemistry going on. It's very natural and it seems that nobody is minding the camera at that moment. But yeah, the, the washing machine gets turned on. We have a lot of also close-ups of the washing machine. And one shot later on in the film is kind of a very extended shot of the washing machine just rolling there, I don't know, 20 seconds or so. Well, it's telling us for one thing that definitely the kids are doing the laundry, which at least in my family, I didn't get to do the laundry in a long, long time. I must have been at least in my late teens or something. So, of course, the perpetual boredom is well communicated with this shot, I would say. Then the somewhat claustrophobic nature that the apartment has, because there is not enough space for a family of this size. And regardless, there is still a lot of smiles going. Akira is still smiling a lot also, and especially to his mom as he's studying on the table. And uh, mother asks what is six times six and all that. Next day, we see a bit of a full shot of the, the apartment building. And outside the building, we have this sign that says Rihasta. Shaw, what, what does Rihasuta mean? Uh, I think it's the name of the building. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now we see the mom crying from the corner of the eye. And Akira is getting increasingly worried. What is this game that they're playing together with their fingers? Show. It's a counting. So people say uh, three. And once people uh, declare the number and how many people uh, raise their finger. If I say three and other people raise their hand and the total number is three, I can win. Okay. And while they're doing that, Akira is giving all these concerned looks at his mother. I'm kind of amazed that the kids would behave this normal if they had, if they would spend all their waking hours inside the same flat. But it seems that they're very much used to it. Kyoko says that she wants to go to school. Mother keeps on doing these excuses. And we have this uh, kind of a notable moment of Akira and mom on the balcony. Mother says that she is very much in love. And if all goes well, then maybe Akira would go to school and... Kyogo could start playing the piano, and uh, this doesn't impress Akira the least. No, instead, Akira just kind of casually remarks that again. Mom is still coming back from work. For some reason, Akira pretends to be sleeping when mom comes home. Maybe he doesn't want to communicate with her. Who knows what's going on in this guy's mind. 
And mom is talking about the Haneda Airport in Tokyo. Yes, it's one of the largest airports in Japan. Okay, awesome. We get a little bit of tidbits about the father of Kyoko. At least that's what the mother is explaining. It's hard to know what she's saying is actually the truth or not, but she's saying that Kyoko's father was a music producer and that she wanted to be a singer, but the deal fell through. They were almost ready to push the album out or something like this. So she has many dreams. Yeah, emphasis on dreams because the film strongly hints at the direction that none of the stories that the mom tells to the kids about their fathers actually is true. It most definitely is not true with Kyoko, whose dad, as we later see in the film, is not a music producer. And in in fact, it's extremely questionable who the father really is. Is it the taxi driver or is, is it the pachinko owner? I believe we see Yuki's father, but then we see another person, but we never quite established which father this was, if even the person was the father, the guy who is by the vending machine asking for coins. Is that the pachinko guy? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one I meant with the pachinko guy. Yeah, that's something that I kept also wondering if indeed she had been in some kind of a music business and trying to get into a relationship with this kind of a music producer to get her album done, because she might be using people to get what she wants, and then dumps them when it's not working out. And I think uh, she's looking for a guy who has much money, who is rich. So that's why she used to date with other pachinko staff or taxi driver or music producer. Mm. When I watched this, their scene and when I had her ex-boyfriend, I assumed that, oh, she's very 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 childish and she is always telling a very fantasy story such as i'm going to get married with a very good person who has much money so i think that's a point she are is immature and she doesn't look responsible for children yep next day is the letter from mom on the table dear akira your mother's going away for a little while please look after kyogo shigeru and yuki and get some money Akira also tells Kyoko that mother won't be in for a while. And the washing machine is now rolling here. On and on. 31 minutes, we get already trouble with the rent, the electricity bill, phone or gas. Or these are the ones that Akira says that he needs to pay. And he is the one who needs to worry about everything. Akira withdrawing or depositing money. All the kind of adult stuff is hitting him. And he's uh, busy in his mind. Like, what do I have to do next? I have to go here and do that. And then pay this. And, and then I laughed when Akira stepped into this uh, comics store. Just to stop everything important. And do all the child stuff again. It was kind of funny and sad at the same time. It's switching. Yeah. And then for some reason, some boys put some items in Akira's shopping bags. So what was the king idea here? Like, just to get him into trouble? Because if they're trying to use him for smuggling purposes, that would be kind of a hassle, because how are you going to get those items when Akira is outside of the store? Or is it, is it just to make Akira look bad? Mm, to me, it was simply to make Akira look bad for what the kids really don't have any reason or purpose for. So the whole scene kind of just becomes scrutinous for the sake of being cruel. But how did the worker then figure out that Akira wasn't the thief? I was wondering, maybe she went through the security footage and how did the boss figure out that 
he had any items in the bags in the first place. When when it comes to a worker, I I'm I'm guessing that the worker simply saw this happen and just didn't intervene as as the kids were shoving stuff in Akira's bag. How the owner actually started to suspect Akira and in enough to run after him and drag him back to the store. That I really don't actually know. Maybe he saw some empty spots on the shelves and that didn't kind of match with his arithmetics and went outside to get the guy. That could be and it could be the case that by that point Akira was the only kid still within the store, the last kid leaving. And because of that, a prime suspect for the shop owner. But it it's not kind of really ever established in the narrative. And and the shop altogether, like the whole scene also is is somewhat standalone-ish. In, in the film like a lot of the scenes are. In in here you are being introduced to the shop owner and the grocery shop itself, but the shop owner nor the shop actually end up playing that big of a part in the story. The shop does return, but not in any kind of a grandiose fashion. There is not a lot of grandiose fashions here. It's just s- stuff happening in a documentary-esque fashion. Quite, quite a lot, quite a lot. But at the, and at the same time, the film itself really hammers home the point that this is still is not a documentary. This is this is like the film establishes in its opening shot. This is this is a fictional film and not a documentary. So the documentaristic style here is is kind of just that. It's it's a style, which makes sense in a way. If you don't want to necessarily pull people by the heartstrings, which is what the director, by his own words, wanted to avoid, he, he just wanted to make it appear as it probably would have been. Like, not this huge amount of tears or perhaps emotions. I mean, I hear that people cry watching this film. Personally, I never got to that point, but I have sad emotions. And I feel that the way that it's flowing is just like it would happen in the natural world. Akira is counting the expenses once again and tries to call mom and no answer. Now goes to see Yuki's father, this taxi driver, and uh, when I was first watching this I thought that he would go see the boyfriend of the mother, because this guy is also a taxi driver, and the only scene where we see the mother talking to the boyfriend, or what looks like it, but it's not that. And, And shockingly, Akira tells to him that she hasn't been home in a month, and then he's like, oh, well, too bad, and he doesn't take any action. Like, this would be the point to say, what the hell. But this kind of father's action is not quite rare in Japan, because so many single mothers are worried about receiving or supporting money from ex-husband. So, so many Japanese fathers do not care about ex-wife or his, their children after they get divorced or after they come to feel that, oh, we are not a family. Oh, that's sad. Akira now goes to the arcade for the first time, but is asked by the security to go outside. But then later on, he's able to go there. Is it a different arcade? I'm not sure. I, I would say it's just a different arcade. Like, that yeah, that's, it looks like a pachinko hall, and they arcade that. Akira visits later in the film looked like just that, just a video game arcade. Yeah, because I was a bit confused because the machines that they are using in this scene, they look like they could be something that a kid would be using as well. So then there's this other dude who wants a coin for the vending machine. He tells that his girlfriend maxed out all the credit cards and Akira has only 10,000 yen. And gets some money, fortunately. And 
And this scene, he is making funny face to a child in the car, right? Yep. But this is also a very social issue in Japan because a lot of children are died in the car while their parents are doing pachinko or doing our oh. like something. Yeah, so oh. this thing, this one thing is also showing out the negative side of pachinko and their pachinko and the parents. Okay. Yeah, because I kept think, thinking what is like the meaning of this scene. So there you go. So back at home, Shigeru gets the plastic scene from the balcony. Akira's hair is being got. Shigeru is smiling in front of the mirror. What is uh, the Maribo? Is it a famous toy? <laughs> no. Okay. It's just some toy. Maribo, Maribo. Maribo. Kyoko is using the nail varnish of mom. Mom says that uh, she was working in Osaka just way too far. But it's basically the next big city, so I'm not sure why you can't come over for the weekend. So she was away for a month. 47 minutes, uh, she says that she'll be back for Christmas. Akira is walking with her to what I believe is the train station. And uh, the mother says, quote, he could have lent you a little more. I mean, your little kid's in a jam. Wow. Wow. So that's how it works. Like this uh, woman is not taking responsibility for anything. Like I understand what you said before that the fathers should take responsibility as well. But isn't she supposed to be responsible for these kids now? So yeah, she's thinking to make a new family. I think the reason why she didn't tell her new boyfriend that I have a child, I have four children, but a lot of guys in Japan do not like to hear their girlfriend has children whose father is different from me. Okay. Mr. Donut Cafe, where Akira is talking with his mother finally face to face, a little heart to heart, at least a little glimpse of that, like, quote, listen, I keep you asking you, when will you let us go to school? You're so selfish, mother. And that's the closest we get to any kind of a confrontation. I was wishing that Akira would go a little bit the extra mile to kind of really attack the mom. That, come on, what the, what the hell is going on in this household? What are you doing? Why are you leaving us? But I guess this is uh, also the, the, the Japanese way that it's really hard to push it further. Mm-hmm. I would kind of say that that's even universal. I mean, yeah. they w- would still have to be the me- dynamic of child opposing his parent. And I, I would say that questioning your parent that strongly, I would say it's hard even for kids in Finland. Of course, yeah. Especially when the parents are still feeding you somewhat in this film. In this scene, Akira strongly asked her mother to let him go to school. And I'm not sure in the subtitles in English, but in Japanese, his way of talking to her mother is, is changed, such as Nantoka Dayo or Itsikasetekurerun Dayo. It's, it's kind of stronger. His talking way to his mother is getting stronger and stronger. So I felt that, oh, he is getting less interested in his mother or he is getting more independent from his mother. I felt so when I watched this scene or when I heard the change, the way of changing, talking way. Yeah, that was my take also. Uh, and this disconnect between Akira and, and his mom, which I also 
took notice that it seemed to be growing as the film went on. And uh, the, the harshness of the tongue Akira uses, on the other hand, that's something that I'm guessing really got lost in translation because the words Akira uses when addressing his mom don't come off that that strong or angry in, in the English subtitle, which is what we are using. Yeah, that's a very good point. At home, there is discussions about Totoro and Akira trying to keep the moods up by saying the Santa Claus is real. I think he's kind of fully taking the role of the, the grown-up here and keeping the spirits up. Akira now buying some discounted food from the Santas at 53 minutes. Weather is getting colder and he sees the schoolgirl now for the first time. And I couldn't quite see it on the first go, but uh, she seems to be throwing away her school books. So the study times for her are at an end for one reason or another. Financial would come to mind. Kyoko is doubting herself that maybe she did something wrong and that's why mom is not coming. And once again, Akira is playing the adult and saying, no, that's not the case. Once again, Akira tries to get in touch with his mother, Fukushima Keiko, and gets to know that she resigned last month. Now the kids are eating together, there's the noodle time. Once again, Akira is trying to track down the mother, looks for a phone number, tracks down the phone number, and mom answers with the at Yamamoto's. And so we find out that she is somewhere with some guy once again. Yeah, most likely at this point, the mother has remarried, which establishes to Akira that the mom is not coming back anymore. This was a little bit puzzling, so it's something that looks to be a laundry room. There's a laundry lady who writes the Christmas cards for the gifts that Akira is about to give that he just bought in the previous shot when he was coming out of the convenience store. Is that what's going on? Because at first I thought that she would be faking the gifts, that they would be coming from the mother. But that theory doesn't hold much water since... Later on, they also seem to receive some money from the mother. Anyway, everybody's saving this money for different kind of gifts. The gift, the money that Akira is giving to his brothers and sisters are, we call it otoshidama. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is a special money when children can get from adults on New Year's Day. I think Akira is trying to spend a very traditional life with his siblings so he did christmas by himself he gave money to his siblings otoshidama so in order to i think he wanted brothers and sisters to feel they live normally or in a good way yeah so akira gave the money yeah and it's important for children to get more extra money on new year's day as otoshidamas also, the mother is missing Yuki's birthday, and uh, Akira goes with Yuki to go shopping, and Yuki has the last piece of chocolate, and she has those noisy shoes that the director found funny when one of the people that was uh, auditioning for the film had these noisy shoes, and he decided to have it in the film this way. And we are shown the monorail, and uh, Akira wants to take Yuki on a trip to the Haneda airport. But sadly, it will be under some less joyful circumstances later. We get to be introduced to Akira's baseball interests as he's playing kind of baseball with a stick. And Shigeru is now at the balcony, so the rules are being broken one by one. At 110, 
we get to the arcade. We hear actually the music from the first Sonic the Hedgehog game. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are aware, but it's uh, the Starlight Zone level from the first Sonic for Genesis or Mega Drive. I thought it was kind of a random sound bit, but then I researched this and there actually is an arcade version of Sonic the, the Hedgehog, the first one. So the things you learn during this podcast. Uh, count on you, Kari, being the one who notices from all, all the things in the film, <laughs> you to be the one who notices the, the Sonic the, the Hedgehog music playing in the background and actually looking up the, the arcade cabinet of Sonic. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I'm the guy who grew up playing Sonic games. My, my first game was Sonic 2, then Sonic 3, Sonic 4, <laughs> or Sonic and Knuckles, as it's known. Uh, it looks like a springtime now. Akira has new friends, and the shop lady asks about these friends. It seems that Akira is a bit hesitant to state that they are friends, because later on we see that these guys are shoplifters. Akira once again in front of the cash dispenser, kind of an interesting scene. He doesn't deposit any money, because he likely doesn't have any money. Perhaps he's only dreaming that he would be able to deposit some. At 1.13 the friends come now over to the house to play some video games. Did anybody catch what is this video game, this beat-em-up game that they're playing? It looked to me like the first Tekken. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, me, me neither, but that's from the couple of shots that you get. Yeah, and actually when you look at the game, of course, this is this can't be 1988, so we have to correct course here. So this can be from the 90s. So the way that this production worked is that the Korea spent a year filming this and they would shoot over one season and then he would go to his editing booth to edit the footage and then return back to the production. So it was almost a year long, the entire production phase, the shooting. The director actually stated that, quote, it was actually more about my growth. I have a lot of experiences with documentaries and with documentaries you go shoot and edit and prepare your next interview and go shoot it. I wanted to see if I could make a fictional piece that seemed more like a documentary. So it seemed logical to film in that manner, where I would go and shoot and edit. The film was in my consciousness on a daily basis." End quote. Gas bill is overdue now, and the children are drawing over the gas bills. This is the stark contrast that we see in these situations once again. And the shoplifting happens. Akira is a nice boy, so he doesn't play along yet, and the, his friends don't quite like that. Late hour video games, we see Akira playing video games until the wee hours. And this I I felt that was kind of the turning point where the flat is completely starting to fall apart. When we introduce the video games, unfortunately. He starts playing those and he completely disregards the entire flat around him. And it's starting to become a chaos. You could also read it in a, in a way that now the guy is hungry, he doesn't want to do any household chores anymore. He just leaves everything to be, and so does everyone else. Yeah, that, and also the growing feeling of of the kids being trapped and feeling that the situation is hopeless, which is also something that very easily drives you to a point where you no longer pay attention to your surroundings and cease from do, doing simple tasks like doing the dishes and cleaning up. In turn, you pay less and less attention to your surroundings and it becomes kind of a cycle and that's kind of what i i took that the family or, or the kids are trapped into from this point onwards like the hopelessness of their situation 
makes them feel tired and kind of forces them not to see the point in anything anymore. No, there's no point in doing the dishes and keeping the apartment clean. Yeah, and I I also noted that um, after this, the next scene is when Akira goes to see his friends who leave the school and he invites them to play the new video game that he, he got. Uh, but the friends don't want to come to his flat because it smells there. So very much connected. Yeah, yeah, that, that, and also they start to distance themselves from Akira once Akira refuses to do, do the shoplifting and refuses to take part in, I would say, kind of a ritual that the kids have. Like, when Akira chose not to sh- steal from the store, he kind of broke against something that he was supposed to do in in the mind of these kids and now the kids are distancing themselves from Akira. And at 1.21 we meet the schoolgirl once again, Saki-san. And some kind of a prankster is done for Mizuguchi Saki here. Mailman problems. What looks to be a mailman visits the door, so they're trying to hide away from the guy. And Yuki is holding on to Akira's shirt for security. And Akira goes to ask, ask for some part-time work from this convenience store. That would have been kind of harder if he would have been spotted as a shoplifter. But anyway, it's not it's, it's of no use because uh, he cannot start doing part-time work until he is 16. The lady's raising some concerns here, like shouldn't you contact the child welfare? But uh, Akira explains that then the four of them can't stay together and this happened before and it was an awful mess. So this level of distrust to your social services, well, it is to be expected, I think, even in, in, in Finland. Well, I have well, the child social welfare system in Finland is an awful mess as well. Unfortunately, of course, media likes to bring up all the worst cases every time, but uh, it, it hasn't really built trust to government. Yeah, then again... The only notions that you ever hear from child protective services in Finland are the failures. And they, they, yeah. we are still talking about institution that works every day. So I, I would kind of hesitate to say that simply because of the media depiction and the depiction given by angry ex-parents, the child protective services in Finland really would be that bad. I, I don't believe that, but at the same time, it is quite common fear that what the child protective services do and the only thing that they would do is just, you know, break up the family and take away the kids and separate the siblings. And that is, I, I would say, even more typical fear in the mind of a kid who doesn't yeah. really even understand how how an institution or uh, how, how child protective services work all together. I mean, many adults don't understand what child protective services do and how they operate, so let alone a child. Well, if I would open up a bit when, when I was in the primary school, I did say some stupid things that I shouldn't have said, and I had to be in some kind of a therapeutic sessions that the government had organized and also in these sessions I just got the the feeling of distrust that they are the questions that they are asking are all the wrong questions like they are 
always assuming for the worst. They didn't let me to explain what I'm about first, like talk more generally about my circumstances instead of asking all the pointy questions like did this happen or did your mother do this or what do you want to do with yourself? Do you want to cut yourself? For the record, I didn't. So it was just a huge piling stinking mess. I have to say. Yeah, so. but at the same time, they kind of had to do that. Like, can you imagine yeah. the media frenzy that would have go, gone through, that would have happened had the, the suspicions or, or the fears actually proven out to be correct and they would have failed to take up action? Yeah, but what if they would have taken the wrong action based on the wrong questions? Yeah, yep. Yeah. I, I mean, that can happen and at times it does happen but at the same time there are also those who who work in instances like child protective services they are being trapped by kind of the social sphere where if you fail to take action when when the action is needed you are absolutely 100% crucified and because of that you have to be extremely kind of a careful and distrusting of the situation because would the sit- uh, situation be uh, have been as bad as they feared in that point? Well, of course, everybody would have lied. That the kid lies to protect the parents, the pr- parents lie in order to protect themselves, so you can't really kind of take everyone's word for what they are saying, since if, if if somebody would be lying and the situation would be drastic, then in that case you would have failed to take action and the next child death would be on your hands and oh my god, why did the system fail? Those are the tricky situations. Akira finally lets everyone go out. He has received at least from Kyoko the money that he, she was saving for the piano, but uh, now it's time to be happy again for a little while. And uh, once once again, notice that all of these rules are going to be broken one by one now. Everybody is out and they are going to shop a big basket full of food. And they find some flower seeds in the basketball field like and collecting soil to grow these things. I wasn't sure where they're supposed to be berries. Like, are they trying to grow berries? Do you know anything about this show? Uh, it's, it's kind of wide berry. Well, we don't have, I think, oh. yeah, it's it's not so popular, but we can see such this kind of berry in the picture book. So I think this is a berry, yeah. Okay, okay. okay. Great. Yeah, but this uh, moment of acceleration is short-lived because the electricity has been now shut off and even water has been shut off. So everything is happening now outside in the park regarding toilet and washing clothes and hands and getting drinking water and there they meet again this girl saki and she's invited inside the flat the shirts are starting to smell real bad and clothes are all broken landlord visits and uh, is only wondering where the mother might be but doesn't really give a crap about the children saki is selling herself to get some money akira doesn't accept and there is the long Tracking shot of Akira as he's running through the streets for some time. Yuki starts eating paper at 1.47. So that escalated quickly. The water is running out. Supposed they can go always back to the park to get some more. But Akira says that Shigeru can't use all the water like that. And Akira is already ready to 
sell some clothes. And by accident he manages to join a baseball game. A kind of a little glimpse of what he could have in the school time. And quite the accurate description of how these school baseball teams are formed. Like the coach just picks any random layabout that just happens to be on the premises or somewhere near the field as the match is supposed to start. But at 201, there's a weird mumbling or what seems to be like it, it doesn't make any sense to me what's what Akira is saying here. There's some kind of shaky cam which suggests that the guy is completely out of energy. I was even wondering why he would waste his energy to go into the baseball game because now he needs more food. But he says something like, in heaven, grandpa, grandma, so surprised, home run, in heaven. So I guess the guy is losing it. I took it that way also. At, at this point, the heat and the malnutrition and this situation overall is kind of starting to break his, his spirit and even psyche. So this desperate moment then leads to the decision to meet Saki once again, after all, when Akira already had previously said that we will never meet this woman again. He needs the money at least to get the ticket with to the monorail to, uh, to show Yuki some airplanes, so to speak. And they buy a whole bunch of chocos as well. Packing the bag, I guess, full of those and uh, his favorite toys and... And they're taking, taking the trip to the, the airport to bury the child. Because Yuki hit her head into the balustrade of the balcony. And uh, Kyoko and Shigeru watch Saki and Akira leave the building. And they say, is it goodbye? And they hold hands. Yeah, it's goodbye. This quite grim moments. So they dig the grave somewhere around the airport. There's kind of a fade out that would signal the end of the film, but it's not over yet because we have yet again one shot where Akira is collecting food from the back door of this one convenience store. And Akira gazes at the airplane. They all stand there together by the street and Shigeru collects a coin from one of these payphones. And now they walk off into the end credits. The ending was supposed to be a little bit different, at the early stages of the film, the script was titled Wonderful Sunday, and things unfolded from Akira's subjective point of view, and film ended with fantasy sequence in which the entire family, the children, the mother, and the various fathers, they would be reunited for a Sunday outing. Okay, that may might have been an interesting ending to see, because the film itself also it, it does have this kind of a theme of of the of lost boys who, who were characters in in the Peter Pan story where they also were children who had been abandoned or had themselves abandoned their parents and now lived without them and you kind of get that same lost boys notion in nobody knows where also once again the children have to live without their parents so having having that kind of a fantastical ending against a somewhat fantasy driven theme could have been an interesting mix to see i think it would have been an ending that could have worked because when i was watching this film i was 
kind of still left hanging like what's to come after this but uh, at least they have now reunited with Saki and this is kind of the first moment that they are together with somebody so to say from the outside world so maybe they will get somewhere after this last shot actually in life let's hope so let's hope so and also Saki is close in the the final shot they are still clean and they are intact like they they haven't broken down like like the kids clothes so in in that sense there is also the notion that maybe stuff like laundry machines and even money can still funnel into the family and into the kids household through Saki which in the long run would mean that there is also now a higher possibility that the rest of the kids still manage to survive and will at least not starve to death. Mm. Yeah, I felt that this kind of a last shot, at least they are in a good mood. They seem to have had some food lately, Anna. And supposedly it kind of suggests to me in the end frames that, that these people are going to be all right. Even if they're going to spend some time in this reality that they were pushed on, they would be fine if they stick together. But let's give the voice for a bit to the director because he had something to say about the ending. He was asked about whether he should have done like the more traditional happy ending or something like this. And he laughed that quote and yeah, he's talking about pumping the tears of the audience. That might have been smarter. That's how a feel-good movie would end. The story would get emotional, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But in this film, I didn't want to give audience that sort of release. That's why I didn't make it so people could have a good cry and say how sorry they felt for the kids. I wanted them to take away something. I think I succeeded because when I read the comments people have left on my website, they say they didn't cry during the film, but after they got home, they looked at their own children and, and cried. I don't exactly want them to have flashbacks though, he said laughing. Exactly. When I watched this film and I like this this kind of ending because to me like so many Japanese people you usually are get worried too much when something serious happened. But after several days we usually start to spend a really ordinary life again and we pretend to forget or we try to forget what happened seriously in the past. We would like to live very normal life again. So when I watched this film, I felt that, oh, I should not forget. I should not forget this kind of ending. Because if I forget or if I uh, forget this ending, we again come back to think we live very ordinary life or, oh, this kind of things has already ended. So it's not none of our business. Mm. So I think the creator and director of this film try to cast a doubt or try to cast a question to many Japanese people. Yeah, every single this kind of sad things ends very easy way like this film. But it means that we can forget it very easily and we can make the same mistakes again because the shop convenience store staff still give children their food, people can make the same mistakes easily. So I think when I watch this film, I 
understand and I understood this ending mean that we should not make the same mistakes again in this, this kind of way. Yeah, something like that for me as well. I felt that the ending message was that we should, when people are suffering, we shouldn't disregard them and we should pay more attention to our surroundings. Yeah. I think that's the, the, that's the overarching message. And the director commented on the ending still something like, uh, quote, a lot of people, especially Japanese, come to the theater to have a good cry. If they come to this film with that idea, though, they're making a mistake. Of course, some will cry, but that wasn't my intention. I wanted to be more stoic. In fact, I got rid of anything sentimental. Commenting on the ending, he said, he does have the neighbor girl with him, though she's not a relative. So although you can't say the ending is happy, at least there's one outsider with him. There's more of a feeling of a possibility. At least that's what I thought when I finished shooting. The presence of an outsider is really a plus for them. Their world will end by them venturing into the bigger world outside. They'll encounter a new way of life, a new point of view. If their world had collapsed from the inside, it would have been really tragic. But instead, this outsider enters their world and it starts to open up. So yeah, everybody there in the streets suffering. They could all be Akira, Shigeru, Kyoko, Yuki, Saki. We all have names, so let's try to take care of each other. Regarding favorite performance, maybe our guest wants to go first in this category. I like the scene. I like the favorite performance as the daughter asked her mother where she had been to. Uh, was it Yuki or Kyoko? Uh, Kyoko. Kyoko, yeah. What about Henry? I'm going with Yuya, or however you pronounce the name. Yuya. Yeah, but anyways, the boy who played Akira in 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 the film in an award-winning performance. Yeah, Yagira Yuyasan. He won this. Uh, was it the Can Best Actor? Yeah, accolade. Yeah, and I I can very well see why. Like his his performance here is very nuanced and very subtle. There's not nothing really that extreme. A lot of quiet moments in which he gives these very, very finite, very small facial expressions and tells a lot through them. That is true. But even the director was surprised that uh, Yagira Yuya would uh, get this prize because there was a, a lot of like artistical merit going on in the entire film. But uh, maybe he should, shouldn't have said it so because he also does give an exceptional performance. So for me, yeah. That goes to the same guy. A favorite scene. Did you have any? Who goes first? My pick for the favorite scene would be the moment when Akira takes takes Yuki out for her birthday. I kind of did like when Akira connected with the outside world and got these two friends at least. And they were playing video games together. What about Sho? I like the scene that all children go outside and play outside and shopping. I'm not sure about to their really little brother and really little sister. It may be their first time to go shopping or to touch ground or to feel real nature, not in the painting books, picture books. So it's not so special for, for most of us, but to them, especially to little children, it must be quite amazing time for them for the first time in their life. You know, it's quite amazing time even for everybody now around the world because of this corona crap. 
<laughs> so maybe this is a very timely film. Yeah. So even the even though the park they play outside, it's not special one. It's quite ordinary things. So it's not kind of Disneyland or it's not a kind of amusement park. But to them, it's quite amusement park. So and it's so difficult for nowadays children with a lot of food, a lot of planes, but to imagine how their situation is, how happily they live, or how normally they live. So when I watch this scene, I come to think that, oh, this kind of ordinary life or ordinary things is, are, are sometimes so rare or sometimes so happy thing to some children or people. Yeah, so I do like this scene. Mm -hmm. Very good. Was there any favorite quotes? Because I had a lot of trouble with this because... but. There's a lot of quotes that uh, relate to the poverty that they're facing. And one just happened for some reason or another strike me a little bit here is this. When Saki asks, you washed your hair? And Akira responds, yesterday at the park. So that's it for me. Yeah, for me it would be when Akira angrily kicks Shigeru's toy, breaking it. And some other kid who who see, sees this happening just comments amazing power, which is at least in the English subtitles, which is kind of the most anime thing that this film has to throw at you. <laughs> I missed that one. Amazing power. <laughs> what about Shaw? Did you have favorite quotes? Yeah, my favorite quote is that their mother, when Akira asks his mother that, when she's going to talk about children to her new boyfriend. She said that I will talk about that someday or later. So this kind of phrase, I will talk about that someday. Or I will talk, I will do that later. We can usually say, we can easily, easily say this phrase or quote whenever we meet something difficult or when we, when we would like to avoid something annoying. So, oh, when I heard this, I assume that, oh, this mother will never say, will never tell that she has four children to her new boyfriend. For sure, yeah. Okay, the most troubling subject that we seem to have in this podcast time and time again would be our favorite kill, which comes from our you know horror movie history in this podcast, and we just decided to keep it here. Favorite kill uh, for me, because there are no good answers, it's going to be one of those berry flowers on the balcony you cheap coding bastard <laughs> like like i'm I, I i'm gonna pick the answer that you were too afraid to to choose it's it's the chair that knocks off yuki oh my god you are a horrible human being <laughs> what about show well uh this is so difficult question to me i i didn't have such kind of point of view when i watched this film <laughs> well i'm not surprised <laughs> okay yeah, it's quite quite understandable. <laughs> yeah, uh, we can happily give you a pass on this one. But random confusing question of the night. Henrik, do you have anything or shall I go ahead? Kari, how many ch ch children have you abandoned? The in inevitable doom. Um, now that you mentioned it. There is just one family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, 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 there was my sister, of course, which I abandoned for five minutes in an old shack in the middle of the night. I kept telling my sisters that there's a boogeyman in this shack when we were in in our summer house. 
And in this uh, shack outside, I had put a tape player and the tape would start playing some horrible <laughs> sounds when they would enter the shack. And uh, that's one way, I guess, to abandon people and scare the living crap out of them. Yeah, so Kari's sister, if you are listening, I'm really sorry that Kari's father. <laughs> Something went wrong when I was <laughs> left alone with some horror movies as a kid. Okay. But Henrik, what would you have done differently had you been Akira? Mm, most likely I would have still tried to cut or the luxury spending that was going on in the film, like buying the, the video games and giving that New Year's Eve money to, to the siblings and other these. I most likely I would have run even more tighter budget than Akira does in order to make the money last uh, at least a bit longer. Maybe also not antagonize Saki after it came out that she had gotten some money from, from that businessman with whom she went into the karaoke bar, bar. Yeah, I think I could have tried to push more aggressively for the shoplifting under those circumstances, because what else are you going to do? I, I'd rather eat something than be in constant state of sickening hunger. And I would have tried to track down the mother after eating enough food to have enough energy to travel, track down the mother and... and Try to do something, probably something that is not even fitting to this podcast. Yeah, in, in Akira's defense, he does repeatedly try to reach the mother by telephoning. Yeah. Shosan, any thoughts on that? Mm, it's quite difficult, but if I were him, I think I would call the mother or I would like to visit the mother in order to help us. Yeah. But I think... Yeah. She would never help us, and she would say, please do it by yourself. So I would like to hear, or I would like to be declared that my mother abandoned us. I would like to know that, or I would like to hear that directly from mother. If I was told that, I think I would change my mind. I would go to police, or I would like to go to the city center. But as long as I love mother, I can't do that. So in order to stop loving her, uh, I like to talk to her. And I like to be told that I was abandoned. What drew you out of this film? Uh, kind of hard to say. Uh, because I did have some problems with the film. But I, it's, my, my, my problems were more with, with the tone and the style of the movie. And I'm kind of a... It, it's hard to say. But do... Are those kind of a standalone things that would have actually put me out of the film as they are more so they are just constantly running elements of the movie? Well, this is a kind of a documentary and take as we have noted, but sometimes I felt that it, it could push a little bit harder on the characters or the circumstances. Like it's a very naturalistic film, uh, but these kind of films might work the best when they're a bit shorter. I mean, this film is quite long. So I did say Jesus at some point, just out of surprise when I was looking at my watch, like how much I still had left to go. But I still enjoyed it throughout. Given the length, I probably would have pushed for a little bit more conflict in, in the story. What about Sho? What drew you out? When I was Akira, 
given the advice by the convenience store staff that how about going to the child care center or something. He declined the offer and it was so sad to me because he didn't know how to ask people to help them. It's too too shocked to me, yeah. Two shocking moments. So that's what you didn't like. Yeah. What drew you in, Sho? When I rewatched this movie, uh, I drew in the scene of by seeing that Akira uh, played baseball with so many children and with her, her coach. Because in Japan, usually the school children, baseball team's coach is somebody's father. So when I watched that, Akira was told how to grab their bat. I think this was his first time to be connected with father. Yeah, so I felt a little bit that, oh, Akira could know how father is through playing baseball. For me, I guess it's a kind of the performances and kind of the realisticity as well. It doesn't make you feel, or try to make you feel something. It just makes you feel by letting us be there in the kid's real world, so to say. Kind of we see all the boredom and this way we start to learn a little bit of their experiences and what it is to be inside that house day in day out so that so in a way i guess it's kind of a this stray dogs effect henrik what were you in henrik uh for mine it's also the performances scissors of sacrilege what would you change in the film or how would you improve the film for me, it could be a bit shorter, perhaps. It could bring something more to Akira emotionally, but it's hard to say. Like you move one thing here, and everything could be could be off. Like uh, this is a, this is a tough one, Henrik. Yeah, also a tough one for me because my problems with the film are more in the the foundation. And the very nature of the film or how, how how the film has been made. And it's not something that you can even, you know, necessarily say that you, you can or you even should fix. As an easy solution, easy answer to the question, I guess I too would trim the runtime. This is two and a half hours almost of, of film, so maybe... Maybe be a bit more harsh with with cut and editing and and take more scenes simply out of it. Yeah, I guess this is what happens when you have a project running for fifteen years and then it's your baby and all the decisions are that much harder to make. Well, I I would maintain. I mean, I'm still willing to defend the film's runtime, even though I uh, I just advocated for trimming it. I, th- this is once again, this is one of the more aspects where I drew cur- comparison to, to Stray Dogs. And I, I would say that like Stray Dogs, also in here, the runtime is intentional mm. and not a fluke or accident on, on behalf of the, from, from the director. Does it work? Exactly. However, I, that's, that's a different question. And I, I would say that's, that's a question that I kind of have to have to tackle on with. With the final question, would I recommend this film as we reach the point? Yeah. Well, how would you use the scissors? 
sure. Do, would you change something? The children in this mo- movie, uh, they just told their their lines, and they don't. They were not asked to read or follow any directions by their by the directors, right? Their all of their actions, all of their words are quite quite are uh, quite natural or quite yeah quite natural at their age or other in their situation. So that makes me much more sad. That makes me confused. That makes me confused about or oh, am I watching the too much real or am I watching the documentary? Am I watching a fiction? So to some point I would like to see oh this is kind of performance. I like to see more performance things in this film. Yeah, how the director approached the acting is that the he didn't rely kind of on the old trick of cue cards or just feeding them the the lines exactly as they were on the script. He would tell them the next lines, but then they would sometimes kind of uh, kind of kind of try to improvise at the moment. And if possible, I would like to ask the director not to use a real instant ramen because I, in fact, I ate the ramen for today's lunch, so. It was so hard for me. Oh, I ate the same things in the film. Children's eating. It was too. I think many Japanese people、uh, feel that. Oh, I should not eat this cup ramen now, or I should not <laughs> watch this one now. Yeah, too real. <laughs> okay. I like to see more fictional things in this film, such as cup noodle or such as apple chocolate. Yeah, yeah. I I see that it's kind of confusing mood wise that you're doing this.、Uh... Documentary esque、uh, depiction, but then、uh, then again, the film is not、yeah. trying to be the real event. So three adjectives to describe the film for me it would be artistic, realistic, hopeful. Henrik,、mm, to me they are sad, nightmarish, and a bit seen. Seen as in seen as something you have already seen. Okay, and、uh, Mr. Shaw, real and. Japanese and mature. What was mature for you in this film, like the Akira's behavior? Akira and the, the Kyoko, and because compared with their mother and fathers, they are much more mature. Yeah, it's kind of a growing up story, coming of age, but not via shattering your heart to pieces via love, but something more sinister. Especially, unfortunately, they have to get much more. Mature for ending. Yeah. Okay. Watch this. Did you look at your watch during the film? So, in other words, did you feel kind of distracted, bored, even? For me, I did look at my watch because the running time was quite long. I also did check up on my watch. Yeah, yeah I also. Okay. The same. Same for all of us. Here it comes. Would you recommend? Nobody knows who goes first. Yes, I would like to recommend and. Especially to Japanese people, even though this film is Japanese, but much more more people in Japan watch this one. Yeah, th- even though I, I'm not sure if the director got what he wanted,、uh, he seemed to be quite pleased with the end result. I don't know if this came out exactly the right way, but it's still a、uh, kind of a horrifying to see what is happening here, and if it indeed is something that could happen more often now in Japan and. The director gets、uh, gets to show very well how the the children react to things. He gets the right emotional reactions, 
and uh, the performances are great, but you know, yeah, there's something really authentic about the film throughout, and uh, and it makes you feel in the end, and perhaps even more effectively because it's so grounded. But maybe on my part, I was looking for not exactly a happy ending, but uh, more of a kind of a punch to the entire entire story. Now it's kind of a documentary of something that actually didn't happen. It's more like a what could happen. But I would recommend it still. Yeah. Yeah, I I guess I just have to kick or kick the hornet's nest here. Um, this is the reason why I've been kind of on on a bit uncomfortable on my end in this episode because would I recommend the film is not the easiest question to answer. In in a in a way, yeah. I, I guess I I could and would recommend the film. Uh, on technical side, the movie is, is really well made. Technically, this is this is good, solid, slow burned drama, and the film kind of doesn't do anything inherently wrong. Like like this obvious thing that you can point out and say that yay or nay because of this thing, but at at the same time. I just wasn't entirely with the movie. The nobody knows. To me, it's 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 something that I have taken to call misery cinema. Movies where the point is to kind of just stay in the moment. There are scenes that more or less just happened and are just filmed, and they and they mostly just exist in isolation from each other. There's no real clear story if if something misery cinema often tries to try tries to avoid really telling you in any kind of a bigger narrative and the point kind of a more is just staying in the moment and wellowing in the misery showing you how this is awful and still awful and it's, tomorrow it's awful and mm. e- even even the the director's choice of of using documentary style but still not making a documentary this is a fictional film that's also something that i've i've seen a lot used in this type of films and those are the reasons why i i have been drawing the comparisons to stray dogs because stray dogs does the exact same thing except this film and stray dogs they use the you use the same technique that they use the length of the film to drive the jarring feeling of the situations that the characters are going through. But where Stray Dogs was an art house film that had three minute long takes of of person simply smoking a cigarette, and there was there was this whole Zen filmmaking aspect to it. This then nobody knows is much more traditional filmmaking: shorter scenes, tighter cuts, more transitioning from scene to scene and it's still to me very much rang like stray dogs and so much just like most of of the misery cinema often does and and it's because of that that i like almost uh, through the entire running time of the film i had this feeling that more or less i have already seen the film and because of that, my recommendation is is kind of a lukewarm. It's once again those fringe recommendations where I 
can recommend Nobody Knows to someone who hasn't yet experienced this type of film, but but if you have experiences from this type of dramas, like for example, if you were followed through our International Cinema Challenge and saw Trey Dogs, in that case, I, I would say that, yeah, you can check it out, but it might not have the most profound effect on you. It, you may even find Nobody Knows a bit boring, because in some way you have already seen that seen the film when you checked out Stray Dogs. So, yeah, I, yeah, recommendation, but, but it's, it's, it's one of those fringe things, once again. <laughs> uh, we're starting to get a lot of these fringe things lately. Maybe we should uh, kind of a note that we could have kind of the thumbs up or thumbs down or thumbs somewhere in the middle or something like that. Three stages of how to do it. Like the Pelaya Lehti famously did, Pelaya Magazine from Finland. I quite yeah, like that. Yeah, that was a burning dumpster fire sound. No. Was it? <laughs> it was. Like, basically, when it comes to Pelaya Lehti, you can, you can take a note what Pelaya Lehti did and do the exact opposite. <laughs> okay. It's kind of like you are either into this type of cinema or then you're not. I, I think there's two kinds of people. The people who can easily dwell on this kind of environment. Maybe you're not one of those people. So maybe you see one of these kind of movies and you're over and done with the genre altogether. I've but... just seen a number of these kind of films. Okay. This is by no means my first rodeo in the, in the, in the this type of filmmaking and yeah. these filmmaking tactics. I, I don't doubt that, but... So this doesn't didn't bring enough for you on the table too. Not not for me personally. No, unfortunately not. I mm. like to be exactly honest. I was even bored do, during mm. nobody knows. That's yeah. why all that watch checking happened. Yeah, kind of a frustration because you were expecting something to happen for so long, and then it's getting into the two-hour mark, and you're like, I guess it's it, not ever gonna what, happen. More than that, it was that that since I'm I'm familiar with with how these type of films often go, I already I, I was way ahead of the film, like two or three steps, or, or I would say I was I was head up head up, head the entire curve as I was watching this film. Once once I noticed that this is once again this this is one of these slow burn. Well, we are once again dealing with misery cinema. And I noticed that this is not taking a breaks from the usual trappings of misery cinema. After that, I just realized that, well, this is just going to be that. This is going to be, there is a scene that happens to, to showcase, uh, show you this, this situation. And then there is a new scene that shows you once again, this situation. Then there mm. is going to be a third scene about the situation. I, that's, it's just going to be that until we finally reach somehow some kind of an end point. In in here, the film just kind of a goes on, tracks on up until that the point that the little sister dies, and then they go and they bury the little little sister. One shot at them during outside during daylight. Got to credits. And it kind of made me question: How is this movie rated that high? For example, in the what you would call the dumpster fire called IMDb, I believe it's eight point five out of 
10 now and uh, not only the general audience but the critics alike have loved this film i did find to, yeah to open that one a bit uh, as as you look at the imdb score also pay attention to how many people have seen the film it's something like 23000 reviews on IMDb or, or scorings on IMDb, not even reviews. And on, on the score, the official critic reviews and the scoring from the official critics, they do weigh in a bit more than, well, a score you and me would give as we just would visit the site. So even though it has a high IMDb score, there are not that many people who have actually checked out the film according to to IMDb and from from those people like from the 23000 viewers the the critics and and the film festival audiences i, I would say have waited uh, quite a lot into into the IMDb score that the film has and it's kind of easy to see why people would like it, or or not necessarily like it, but ha- rate it high. Like I, I can very well see why a film critic would love the film. I can understand why Roger Ebert gave three and half stars mm-hmm. to the film because there is a lot of a lot of things that usually appeal to film critics and and the the film festival audiences. Like like the theme and the style and everything that that is something that often the film critics and and cinema buffs who see see the the trouble to go to Cannes or any other big film festival where they would see these type of films they usually do appreciate. Sure, it has that uh, cinema festival vibe all over it. Yeah, yeah, but like a seasoned guy like Roger Ebert. I suppose he could have had a little less praiseworthy words to say about the film, considering well, the guy so, has so, watched like 10,000 plus movies. Yes, uh, um, and once again, to tie it down, to, to, you kind of seen the, the film if if you have experienced quote-unquote misery cinema before. Even in, in his review, if I remember correctly, Roger Ebert mostly just you know, did what we did, gave a scene by scene and talked about about scenes and what happens in the story, explained the narrative to the audience and not so much dwelled into what he liked or what the film was about or or had a discussion about the film itself. The review was more just, you know, a quick run-up of, of the narrative. And that's also something that I do often feel that ties down with these type of films. Like, critics often take these as some kind of a darlings and give them high scores. But at the same time, they also fail to tell you, well, much anything about the film itself. Couple of notions here and there. Oh, Saki now says that he has just gone to, to karaoke bar, but who knows what happens tomorrow? It's 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 the case just for now. This is a lead up into prostitution. Give a hindsight point like that, or close observation like that, and all, all the rest of your review is just you know you going through the narrative. Three and a half stars out of four. 
which is something that I've seen noticed is is kind of a running theme when critics review these type of films. The listeners might know my endless love towards Roger Ebert. Yeah, I've given the guy some kind of a rough time from this booth before, but he did make some good points though in the review, like quote, what is most poignant is the sight of these kids wasting their lives, end quote. And, uh, and he said that the observation about mother, quote, there's something too happy about her as she acts like one of the kids. It is not the forced happiness of a person trying to keep up a brave front or the artificial happiness of someone who is high, but the crazy happiness of a person who is using laughter to mask the reality of her behavior, end quote. I found that really well said. And from those two points, as as someone who doesn't really have that big of a problem with Ebert himself, mind ya, but from those two two points, I would say only the second one I actually found that interesting. The, the first one to me was, once again, it, it was obvious surface level observation about the film, which once again, to me, it's just telegraphed that Ebert himself also had troubles finding finding a reasoning why he liked the film so much. Like yeah, he he wanted exactly. to give it three and a half stars, but he can't really really tell you why. But it's the Roger Ebert style. Like this is what happened in the movie. Yeah? This is the stars. Goodbye. It, it is it is occasionally, but then again, there are also reviews where Roger Ebert talks much more deeply about the film and what the film is trying to do and what it says and how the cinematic lang- language works and goes like like does actually pretty deep stuff talking mm. about about the the film of the day and I would say those are the reviews that merited Ebert his Pulitzer Prize. And made him all the rave and gave him his gave him his fame. And the review he wrote about nobody knows really doesn't. To me, it's it's not a game Roger Ebert. It's no. kind of a bulk Roger Ebert review. It's kind of like a Halloween three review level. He also noticed about the the character of Akira. Quote: The director prefers to observe Akira observing coping and deciding like end quote so the director doesn't give him a lot of dialogue or actions to make his thoughts clear is what he wanted to say here yeah and what once again kind of a surface level notion i mean that's that's one mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. very first notions we also made when we noticed the the swallowing when the mother is is spinning her bullshit about akira's dad and how Akira yeah. really doesn't say that much in the end throughout the film or during that scene. Yeah, and in a usual Roger Ebert style, he makes some weird errors here, like, quote, Akira was in a school at one point, end quote. At least, uh, uh, unless I missed something, Akira was never in a school, but he was homeschooling himself. Um, I missed completely the reference of any school here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also, I also took it as a case of ho- homeschooling. At the, but at the same time, it's an easy mistake to m- make because Akira is shown to actually go. Is being shown doing doing math, quote unquote homework. But then again, throughout the film, says how much he wants to be in school. 
Yeah, so. yeah, and that's also what signaled to me that he he in the end is being homeschooled or he's he's homeschooling himself. Yeah. Uh, so the only negative review that I found somewhat professional level, I believe, is from Jim Lane from Sacramento News Review. Quote, Koreda's technique involves long silences and static close-ups of hands, feet and foreheads that paradoxically serve to distance the viewer from the characters. And his elliptical style has major events occurring while the camera is otherwise engaged. Still, he gets very natural performances from the kids and Yagira's award, though overly generous, isn't hard to understand, end quote. So yeah, he gave it two stars out of possible five. And my, I myself also kind of find myself levying more towards those two stars than Ebert's three and a half. Yeah. Well, Mr. Shaw, would you yeah. like to complete this sentence? You really know you're watching Nobody Knows When. When you feel something strange about your neighbors, because in the film, their neighbor or their house owner came to see their Akira's family and she asked him, only asked and said, okay, but if I were her, I think there I figured out, I could figure out that or something wrong is happening in this house, in this room. But so many Japanese people who like to stop thinking or, oh, I'm just overthinking, so I should stop thinking. Or, okay, it's a problem, but I like to get involved, so I'm going to ignore. So I think you, yeah, people should, you really know, you're watching, nobody knows uh, when you feel something strange. About your neighbors. Mm, indeed. That that was a very good answer. That's one of the best answers that we have had in this podcast for a long time. Yeah, usually we just <laughs> fool around in this answer. <laughs> Guess we have nothing better to do. So thank you for that that one. Somebody actually put some thought into it. But Henrik, how much <laughs> did you put into this? You really know you're watching Nobody Knows When? I didn't. It's when you show your showcase your amazing power under poverty. <laughs> Yeah, you really know you're watching Nobody Knows When you see a kid laying on the hot floor of an apartment in midsummer and his nonchalant facial expression is screaming, I'd rather be somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I, I'm getting the feeling that we should, should just, you know, hand over the podcast show. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Actually, actually, you could because I'd rather be editing this show than be talking in it. But I mean, there, there's... Uh, if I'm going to go into this complaint department once again, I, there's so many things to do in this podcast that I just rather be on the sidelines myself at this point, because that is enough already in itself. So there's a job opportunity available here during Corona time. No, just kidding. All right. I believe those were the quickies, but not going to let you go that easily because in closing, we have this new section of podcast recommendations. So. Now you just have to endure and listen when I am kind of selling you to listen to other podcasts than ours for some reason. So first on my list would be out of two. Don't worry, no hundred podcasts here. The Movie Journey podcast. This is essentially two guys called Daniel and Dean that are going through the entire IMDb top 250 list. So, but it's entertaining and well argued. Episode length is averaging around one hour. So... The movie journey. 
And it's available at least on themoviejourney.podbean.com and any podcast player. Then there is For Your Consideration, or FYC podcast. They are doing, quote, re-evaluating the cinematic canon of past masterpieces and modern classics, end quote. It's kind of their MO, and it kind of caught my interest recently because I stumbled on their Gone with the Wind analysis a few days ago. It's more like a free-flowing opinion-tossing and analysis show. I was quite impressed how deep they go with different character analysis. Great banter. Less explored points of views regarding character analysis. Okay, would it be time to throw away the lab coats for this week? Maybe throw them to some street kids who might need them a little bit more than we do. See, I'm trying to be a better human being here, you know. What is our next film, Henrik? I have no goddamn idea. What is our Why? I keep asking this every week and this guy does <laughs> never know it. Well, the film of the next week would be Belishki. Doubted to be the best film ever to come from Czech Republic. And perhaps the funniest. Are you ready, Henrik? Oh, God. The last time we checked out comedy. But that was an experience. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much, uh, Shaw, for coming up to this show. Really, you helped a lot and it was a great pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you. So, apart from that, you can find us on the social media or the, the you know, whatever Henry calls it. Huh? Hellscape. Yeah, Hellscape. Thank you. You can find us on the Hellscape, for example, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. And of course, we're available on, on all the possible podcast players that you can find out there. Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on and so forth. And we would be, of course, very grateful if you would leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, because Apple Podcasts is kind of the god platform of all podcasting, and uh, it will help us tremendously if you do that. So, And thank you, Henrik, for being able to do this uh, episode on such a irregular time. <laughs> These time zones are a bit crazy sometimes. At times they are. All right. I'm heading off to the next business, and... Uh, Shosan, arigato gozaimashita. Thank you very much for a really pleasure time. Great to hear. See you next week. Until then. So, so, so what? We are supposed to check out the documentary about about your traveling plan? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> like, pro tip, ne- ne- next time, next time, don't, don't, don't leave that tight of a budget. <laughs>